Campus. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a very special episode about design and ecologies. This episode was recorded live before a Zoom audience last November as part of the AIGA virtual design conference during a series of discussions that we organized along with Ion Design around the question of how can we practice design without harming the planet. And so for the event, I spoke with the architect, author, and activist Julia Watson. Julia is the author of Low Tech, Design for Radical Indigenism, a fascinating book that looks at building upon indigenous philosophy and vernacular architecture to generate sustainable, resilient, and nature-based technologies. She's also taught in design programs at Harvard and Columbia and runs Julia Watson's studio, an experimental landscape and design studio. This episode will sound a little bit different because it was recorded live and incorporated into larger programming, but a lot of the themes of the, the show, I think, come through. In our conversation, Julie and I talk about what low tech, which is an acronym for local traditional ecological knowledge means and how it's different than low tech, L-O-W-T-E-C-H, and high tech. We talk about how to shift the position of the designer from problem solver to partner. And we talk about the wealth of knowledge we can learn from local communities around the world about designing with nature. As I said at the conference, Julia's book is filled with incredible case studies and ideas, and I hope we were able to capture just a little bit of that in this conversation. I know I feel like I learned a lot through this discussion, through spending time with her work and, and looking at the book. Don't forget that Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listener support. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. These memberships really help keep the show going, and Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that I think of the director's commentary for the show, including reflections on the episodes, upcoming episodes, and other bonus content, including uh, the full video of my conversation with Julia. And so if you want to watch the video along with uh, just the podcast episode, uh, if you become a member, you can get access to that. If you want to help the show and see it continue, I hope you consider becoming a member. You can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members for all the details. Thanks again for listening, and here is my conversation with Julia Watson. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you for being here uh, today. Um, I want to start by talking about the title of your book, actually. And so the book is called Low Tech, and that's spelled L-O-T-E-K. Can you talk about what that is an acronym for, what that means, and where you uh, uh, where you kind of came across this, this term? Yeah, well, the term was something that I completely made up. So it's nothing that is really familiar, except in the sense of the end of the term, which is T-E-K, which means traditional ecological knowledge and that's just the foundation knowledge that's used in the book um but really it's a combination of the term local and tek and it's talking about local technology and the, it's kind of like um it's a bit of a pun actually it's a bit of like a bit of tongue-in-cheek because i was teaching technology and i was teaching all this stuff that was high tech and what we were looking for actually in the built environment was soft ecosystem technologies and local technologies that work with their environments and their systems. And everyone was calling it low tech, which is L-O-W-T-E-C-H. 
I'm calling it primitive. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, considering this within this kind of ideology of industrialization, like the things that we know, industrial design, like low tech, mm -hmm. hippo mm -hmm. roller, and, you know, these types of systems. And it's just absolutely not that. It's like something completely different. So I was like, what is a way that we can sort of embody all the understandings of these technologies and create a different technology by which we can understand it? And so that was like the birth of the term low tech. Can you talk a little bit more about, because you started answering my next question, actually, which was how low tech, L-O-T-E-K, is different than low tech L-O-W-T-E-C-H. Can you talk about where those start to diverge for you and, and the difference there? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the low-tech L-O-W-T-E-C-H, it's like from industrialization, it is, um, it's born of like manufacturing processes. It's born of an, our understanding of the 20th century and all the processes and, and the history of those processes before that. And, um, and so when you start to categorize the technology within that, it sort of, it doesn't actually consider technologies that have been around for thousands of years. It doesn't right. consider technologies that have come from deep time and deep understandings of, and sort of place-based observation and knowledge systems. And so that's like really where it starts to diverge. When you start looking at local technologies, they're, they're very accustomed to the environmental extremes. They're really working with the natural environment and the natural systems. They have an understanding of you know, flowering times of different plants and understanding of breeding times of different species. They work with climatic extremes. And so that's like, one of you know one of those major differences is this technologies actually come from scarcity come from a limited you know environmental resources and a, and a, and a limitation so it's kind of born out of sustainability but those are the type of understandings that we have about sustainability there's low embodied energy it's low cost they're easy to maintain they're sort of crafted um handcrafted and, and that's sort of, that's where it all sort of get, becomes really different to our understanding of low tech TECH right. and then sort of these local system-based technologies. And so I guess just to, for, for people who are not familiar with the book and kind of the ideas behind the book. So in low tech, you explore um, 18 different indigenous communities around the world who are kind of using these types of methodologies and have been using these types of methodologies. And so this just to, to kind of give real examples, this is things like living root bridges or kind of floating, uh, floating villages or, you know, things like that. You, you are a designer, you have an architecture background. Where did, how did you kind of start to approach researching these and visiting these communities and, and kind of understanding these um, as being a designer and not necessarily being a, a researcher or an anthropologist? Where did, where did those two things start to come together for you in your work? Yeah, um, I think it actually started, I, I studied architecture first and I studied it back in Australia in Brisbane, which was back then a pretty little town. Um, but we had this incredible course and we had this incredible department within the architecture school called um, the Aboriginal Environments, uh, the Unit of Aboriginal Environments. And 
I did a course in second year, which was compulsory to every single student, where we were taught what it meant to look around at um, Indigenous communities and understand their nature-based technologies, their housing systems, the way they constructed um, their built environments and their ind Indigenous technologies. And until that point in time, I had never seen anything like that. Um, I had no understanding, like, you know, what I was taught in school and up until that point, that was just not part of any form of curriculum that I'd ever had. And I haven't actually found that type of teaching since. So that was like this moment that really shifted my thinking in terms of the built environment to like understanding how there's different ways of designing with nature, symbiotically with nature and really working with natural systems and taking cues from the environment to, to sort of um, understand how to um, capture those energetic systems within what you're designing in you know, the smartest way possible, passive design. Right. Um, and so that was, that was like a really incredibly pivotal point. Yeah. I've never found a course like that anywhere in the world like it actually. And that was, you know, that's like going back 20 years. Yeah. And so, yeah. and that, you know, that, 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 that unit is still there um, at University of Queensland today and hats off to Dr. Paul Mehmet who started that. And I, and I think that, you know, there, there needs to be more of that. And low tech was one of those ways to, to try and push that type of thinking. But it was also just this exploration. I've been sort of traveling around the world as like all Aussies do for 20 years, looking at different landscapes and different mm -hmm. ways that human beings design with nature. Um, more as sort of just a speculative understanding that started there. And, and, and as I got deeper and deeper into teaching technology and teaching design studios, um, it just became abundantly clear that you know, we're really interested in remediation and these industrial landscapes. But when we're dealing with remediation and industrial landscapes, the reparation for that, like the, the cleaning of those was using soft technologies. Mm. And the soft technologies was what we we're looking at in these technologies from, from, from local ecosystems. And so it's just really apparent to me that this is where we're heading. And this is what needs to happen, especially with climate change. So can you, can you talk about that? I'm, what was interesting to me about reading the book is, you know, we can really trace the kind of rise of design to the industrial revolution, which is this idea of, in many ways of kind of conquering nature or of overcoming nature or being separate from nature. And I think that mindset still kind of permeates design in a lot of ways and architecture also. And what your book does and what the case studies in your book do is show another way, which is about designing with nature or that design nature is design perhaps and i'm i'm interested in that relationship of you know in, in a weird way it almost seems like design do, like we think design can kind of solve these problems but in, in many ways design is just doing more harm than good you know a, a lot of these solutions are just already there in the world and then we try to kind of like you know, steal them and make them into something else. How how do we actually start to approach this and, and think about how we can kind of incorporate these methodologies into our work? Um, yeah, that's a, a bit of a, a key to in the card design of nature. <laughs> yeah. And obviously like for all designers, like that was like a very seminal book um, and, and very, very seminal sort of part of the pedagogy that we're all taught in design school. But 
I mean, it's interesting the question even because while you're sort of unraveling the question, my mind's like popping off. It's like, well, no, that's not what happens. No, that that's actually not part of it because like. You know, it, it, we design, especially with climate change, we design to respond to systems and to, to deal right. with climatic extremes. And we do it for human survival, essentially. Mm -hmm. And design has always been about human survival. Design is really about, you know, it's about sheltering, it's about food systems, it's about water security. Um, you know, we can expand upon that, obviously, and build in aesthetics and functionality and performance and so much more into that conversation. but. All of those things are still embedded within um, you know, the systems that I'm exploring as well. And there's specialists, there's engineers, there are scientists, mm -hmm. there, there, there are you know, people constructing these systems for a very long time, creating narratives around them. So it might be like a different, you know, if we wanted to equate it with you know, a team of how we would work, there's similarities but then there's like extraordinary differences but there are incredible expertise involved in the construction of these systems um and you know i think low tech is more it is more to sort of like bring to the forefront and bring to the you know a number of things brings people's attention that you know Local technologies are being erased by our yeah. the way that we work as designers globally. Like very commonplace, designers go to different countries and they take with them the technologies that they know, built in and the environments that they're aware of, the materials that they have used before, and and they're often you know wanted. They're they're often asked to come to different countries to to give those right. expertise. Right. But the, but the relationship of providing expertise and providing, um, you know, the, the set of systems that you know about doesn't take into consideration systems that already exist, the knowledge bases that exist in the environments that you'll be working with. And I think that there's this, uh, it's becoming incredibly apparent. And, and also it's being questioned the efficacy of that happening yeah. globally in response to climate change, whether that's appropriate. And the local communities are really the ones who are questioning that. So therefore, we as designers, we need to step back and question, why would we want to go into uh, a different community and a different country and, and work with a different government, when what we'll do is start to erase knowledge, right. culture, ecosystem, and we won't be building systems that will be able to be repaired after we leave, won't be able to be maintained after we leave. And, you know, it's, there's this whole set of issues. I think that now there's this thing where we're starting to question a lot of like the efficacy of like, should we be doing this? And, um, you know, should, sh you know, what is a better way to do that? And the better way to do that is to really work with communities and, and to realize that some of these systems that are out there, like there's one amazing example in the East Calcutta wetlands where um, you know this system has so much um, potential for um, multi-scalar um, different outputs. It's a sewage treatment system that also grows food. It um, you know it cleans water. It um, provides habitat. It provides a hundred thousand jobs. It does all these amazing things, and we don't you know. People are sort of, you know, there's a there's a promotion that we should actually erase that system and and build in a sewage treatment plant to 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 make something that's more industrial, to make something more modern. When this system is incredible, it's so unique and it expands as the city of Kolkata has expanded as well.
I, I think you're you're on to something when you're talking about this kind of erasing of knowledge and and you write in the book about how many of these um, these kind of methodologies have been erased or have been appropriated by other people where their kind of uh, you know initial work has been has gone unnoticed. And I'm, I want to know how you think about that both in regards to the book and kind of, of sharing these stories to make sure that they're not erased, but then also how we as designers can learn from them without just kind of superficial appropriation, you know, not just kind of taking yeah. the, the high level idea, but actually kind of embodying them in the work that we're doing. I mean, yeah, I mean, as I was saying before, I think it's more powerful about, you know, we need to rethink what technology is. We need to understand that we, we don't have to always uh, bring universality or homogeneity mm -hmm. where it's not we there is a way that we can recognize that there are there's incredible diversity there is incredible complexity and that we can work with that and that technology can be about that and so having adopted this understanding that technology is incredibly universal kind of you know it is industrialized it is a manufacturing process it is efficient it is optimized it can be distributed most efficiently around the world i mean those those types of understandings, that's that's not what we're talking about. We're really talking about a very different idea of technology. And by recognizing that often the technology that's born in a place has all the knowledge built into it already. And so, I mean, it, you come up against this issue when you're saying, okay, well, how do we appropriate these technologies into our cities? Because the a lot of the time, you know, the cities and, and the way the cities have developed, that has been the moment and the sort of the, 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 the spark that has caused the erasure of the technologies, as well as so many other different types of processes like urbanization and going back further, colonialism. And so there's been these erasures over time and they're still occurring, which depends on where you're working around the world, where local technologies are not recognized, uh, they're ignored, or they're, you know, intentionally just erased to make way for, you know, different types of processes. So it's more like, okay, we recognize that we're doing this, there's a way that we need to address these forces and these address these ways of practice. And we need to come up with different ways of understanding how to do that. And so could it be that, you know, when we're working in different communities around the world, we're actually promoting local technologies. We're building into our processes ways that we can work with different communities. And, and we're working with indigenous scientists, indigenous designers, and talking about how, what is, what is, what is it that we can use? Uh, what is it that um, is, is going to be appropriate? Where can these, where can these processes begin? Uh, mm -hmm. the sharing of knowledge and that's you know that's a lengthy discussion that has to be had about um what's what's willing to be shared how do we how do we put these emotions into practice in terms of climate change but it's definitively addressed and by the indigenous community that uh you know we need to stand by or behind indigenous leaders when we're coming into talking about climate change and sustainability because the you know it's recognized that these communities have been the people who've been protecting our global biodiversity far better than any of you know the right. conservation systems right. that we have built because you know we see conservation 
you know, peaking at the same time as we see global biodiversity loss and the planet and yeah. climate change peaking. So we've got things out of balance. We need to redress how we're actually going to approach this. I have a, a possibly big question that I'm not even totally sure I can articulate in a clear way. So I'm, I'm going to try because I think, you know, what you're saying about the designer's role is shifting and this kind of question of the designer going into a community, I think is already questionable. And this idea yeah. of, of working with communities, of kind of lifting up communities uh, is, is very clearly the way to go and that they have all of this knowledge. And so I guess the, this is perhaps a two-part question, which is one, how do we how do we avoid uh, romanticizing or othering or, uh, you know, kind of putting distance between us primarily, you know, Western designers trying to understand this so we don't just kind of, you know, talk about it in this kind of like, you know, magical way, but actually really understand it. And then two, what, how does the designer shift from being savior who goes in, colonizes, brings their knowledge, but as one who's working together, um, what, what does that mean for the designer's role in that process? I, mean, I think a big part of this question is really about education and not education like in sort of pedagogy and yeah. the academy. It's like the role of the designer as the educator on right. working within the project. And it can be all those other things as well. But you know, if, if, if one is working on a project, um, often Often when you're working in a project uh, in, a, in a country that is, you know, hit by a disaster, you're needing immediate relief, um, and needing immediate expertise, thinking perhaps on a large scale, how to sort of think about, you know, responsiveness and as well as prevention. Um, you know, the way that foreign direct investment works is that the government will say, well, we need this line of money for sanitation. We need this line of money for building houses. We need this, you know, mm -hmm. and it's very much applicable to like a, a, a framework of budgeting and, and project management that doesn't sort of work right. in the, the right way with those types of systems. So, you know, you're not gonna get the, you know, get to be building uh, or, or restoring or working with an indigenous technology that has food security, water security, sanitation, um, job security, and all those things when you're asking for, you know, concrete culverts because the concrete fault culverts will get you the money. So there's like this right. sort of like education process with governments to as well say like, well, you know, if you want to achieve all these things, you, perhaps within the disaster relief and, and, and the also sort of the preparedness, you need to think about food security and how food security works with hydrology and how how that can work with growing natural resources for um, uh, for building materials and how that can work with flood prevention and how that can work with storm surge prevention so how do you build these sort of multiplicity of systems that function in a combination of ways for when the climate extremes come but also when you know in, in the moment for the every single day right and what what you'll need after something comes that'll get you food security, water security, sanitation, et cetera. And those systems exist. And that's what's really interesting about them. There's not a single, um, you know, it's not a single singular function system that we're talking about. We're talking about systems that are, that are really complex. Um, and I think that, you know, this, 
that that's that's really key in in understanding that climate mitigation can really um, in a very tangible and and a, and a very sort of scalar way understand how to um, use the knowledge in mm -hmm. the systems. I mean, the other side is obviously what I've mentioned before is working with communities, working with knowledge bases, working with people who hold knowledge, working with designers who are from those locations, working with mm -hmm. scientists and saying, you know, how do we build these teams and how do we build these systems? How do we do this R&D? How do we put it into the process of the design? Um, the savior complex, I mean, I think <laughs> the Western savior complex is deeply embedded when it comes yeah. to climate change. And, and that's, you know, I talk about this idea of, you know, survival of the fittest to survival, you know, survival of the, of the symbiotic. And that mm. comes from, actually, actually comes from fluid dynamics theory. And um, and there's a book um, by a woman, Lynn Margola. She actually talks about this. And she said in the you know, in, in early 2000s that this was the way we had to move forward. This is the way that life works. And this is what we have to think about it. So more I'm sort of saying like, understand we're dealing with complex systems, understanding we're dealing with ecologies and understand that place-based observation and understanding of these systems and, and, and the way these systems work even though they're changing because of climate, because of climate change, right. is going to be far more appropriate than, than sort of becoming and saying, well, we've got all the solutions and we can save this. Right. I think that's exactly it. It's, it's not that the designer can save the day or that design alone, but designers in dialogue with yeah. experts, with the communities, with people who are kind of embedded on the ground. There's a question from, uh, from uh, Jeremiah that actually relates to this that I think is a really interesting question. Uh, he says, I've often asked myself what might happen if design was approached as an act of removal versus an act of addition? What is the primary approach to design to design a mode of creation, creating a, uh, addition. And so the question is, what principal approaches do you think are necessary to shift in design education? And do you foresee a future where design education completely shifts beyond a primarily capitalist approach? Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. It's a great question. It's a big one. I mean, um, it's funny because there's so many things that, you know, we can talk about design education, but we can also talk on like a much bigger scale about how we see kind of the world moving. And so this idea that, okay, globalization, everything, there's like universality, everything can, can be sort of, uh, you know, transported around the world and reapplied at scale and it'll work. We know that like COVID has figured, we've understood that that doesn't work. Um, we know that, you know, that with design education, that doesn't actually work. We know that so many systems are dependent upon like the diversity. We know that resilience doesn't work like that. We know that, you know, that we need diversity. We need, you know, all these understandings. We need that for healthy ecosystems. We need that for human survival. We also know that while we have a universal understanding of climate change, like 1.5 degrees, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sea levels will rise this much in this many years. The thing is that every single location that will play out differently. So right. there actually is this universal understanding of climate change, but there's going to be incredibly unique individual impacts. And so the way to deal with 
those individual unique place-based impacts is to use place-based technologies and understandings. Um, and so, I mean, this is, it's not that, you know, all of design is going to move in that direction anyway. This is a subset of right, design. Right. This is a very specific understanding about design. And so it's not, um, it's an understanding that there's a certain part, especially climate change and, and design for resilience, it's moving in that direction. There, there you know, when you're dealing with um, design that's, really sort of more, more working on an international scale as well. That's the type of design that we're talking about. And that's the design education we can talk about as well. Um, another part of that question might be though, that you know, I think that there's been this idea and a model that Western design pedagogy um, and, and uh, European and, and Northern American maybe um, design pedagogy has and, and design practice sometimes you know, is why, you know, it's it, it kind of like the more global understanding of, of the design that sort of makes its way around the world. And, and that's why there's so many students, students that come here to receive that type of form of design. But I think the pushback from low tech and the way that, we're, that I'm thinking is that, you know, everybody that comes has something to contribute to, to this discussion. And that's, that's a shift to say that there's such intelligence that everybody brings to this discussion. It's it's not the superior um, form of design that's coming from the West or from Eurocentric points of view, that there is intelligence everywhere that we can use. Right. I want to I want to like try to to kind of bring this down into a practical yeah. level also because you know you you wrote this book, you did this research, but you also are a practicing architect you have a studio you're doing some of this work how did how do the the kind of principles in the book or or you know the ideas in the book manifest themselves in the kind of actual work that you're doing day to day yeah um i mean surprisingly enough the way that the first chapter began in the book was when i was working with the republic of indonesia hmm. on their on bali's first UNESCO world heritage site and so I was asked by the government to work with uh, a series of local scientists to come up with a tourism management and a conservation plan. And so going there and working with, you know, in this landscape and, and working with the, the local scientists and, and super farmers really came to understand, oh, well, there is all this place-based knowledge that needs to be accounted for. And this sort of, um, universal UNESCO approach of preservation in a cultural landscape that's living and alive, that, I don't know, that we need to like shift that type of thinking. And so um, that's where it began. And so I started sort of working with scientists and this, this work is actually still ongoing, not by mm -hmm. me, but the people I was working with, they're still coming up with ways to innovate rice terrace technology. And that, that, that preservation area was conserving um, 40,000 square miles of rice terraces on Bali. Second project was working with a community in the southern wetlands of Iraq. And I was asked to come on a team to help them design a wastewater treatment park to treat the water coming into the cities to go back into this wetland system where people live on, half a million people lived on islands. And so that project is still ongoing as well. And those wastewater treatment parks are now being repeated all, all the way 
up the Tigris-Euphrates River and they're planning to try and you know, get this to become a, a means of place-based wastewater treatment on site that really deals with local knowledge and local culture and lo local building practices. Um, when I'm working, you know, we just did a project in New York, which was the Rockefeller Center Temporary right. Summer Gardens, which was, you know, an amazing project, but it was on the site of America's first botanical garden. You know, mm -hmm. it has been changed to Rockefeller Center now. Rockefeller Center, um, it's a very urban landscape. There's a planting palette probably of about 10 species of plants. And so our differentiation was to bring in indigenous uh, ecosystems and to build in the Native American meadow, the plant palette of the Native American meadow, and to bring back biodiversity to the city. So using companion planting and all different types of species that work together in the indigenous landscape of this particular location. And you know, we were, we're planting all these different species, we use like 45 different species. And before we finish planting, there's bees and butterflies all over the place, which you never really oh, see wow. in that location. So there's those types of ways of using habitat restoration to then, or rewilding, as is the really popular term, to bring back biodiversity back into the city by using those understandings as well. And then, you know, working overseas, there's projects that we're doing with low-income housing where they're building sustainable systems into low-income housing to try and think of low-income housing isn't just about how many um, you know units in this much space and really trying to sort of like that's where the money goes and not thinking about sustainability on the ground but how do you then build in these types of sustainable systems from around that particular area in the world can you build that into the actual landscape and into the infrastructures right that's built into these um, huge developments. So how, for, for those of us who are not kind of working in this space now, and especially I imagine a lot of the, the people listening to this come from a graphic design background or are in graphic design and, and you know, we can't, uh, we necessarily can't help with kind of rewilding Rockefeller Center or, you know, understanding how to even begin a waste treatment plant. Do you have um, ideas of how someone could shift their practice to start to incorporate these ideas or to or or maybe not even to shift their practice but just to incorporate them in with the kind of work that they're already doing how do you start to kind of bring these things into into the work i, mean, I think that definitely as a landscape architect and an urban designer it, it begins to translate that you're really starting to deal with soft systems and there are lots of designers out there who have been exploring um, soft systems and the way that they work with climate extremes. I think that, you know, there's, there's also this idea of, of thinking about sort of the symbiotic processes, even from a material technology scale. So mm. if you're, you know, if you're in the fashion industry, like how are you going to build um, processes that are the sort of circular economy or closed loop systems? So, you know, how are we going to be thinking about multiple generations when we're when we're designing rather than like the next year or, or there's there's sort of like you can pull out and tease out a couple of you know uh much larger sort of more generic ideologies that you can pull from the thinking rather than very sort of specific so not doing universal like thinking about diversity right. and multiplicity um thinking about responsiveness to environment 
requirements as well. What's sort of um, a place-based design as opposed to something that's sort of, you know, very um, uh, uh, ignoring its local environments or local conditions. So, and it's not applicable, I don't think, to all facets of design, but I think that there's also always been this idea that sort of local technologies um, and this type of thinking is sort of in the past or, mm -hmm. you know, like you were talking about that idea of the romanticism and the reminiscence of, but mm -hmm. these are all incredibly complex and, and present. This is the everyday, this is, this is now, this is contemporary, right. this is um, where we are at in the world that this is all the technologies that exist now. And so um, there's a way that we can understand that there's a lot to, to look at, uh, there's a lot to, to understand rather than, you know, the, the go to what we, what we are, have been um, always going to and, and sort of the, the, first, um, the first choice or the, or the first way of thinking. We can like really extend ourselves beyond that. I mean, it's, it's interesting too, because we, we keep kind of talking around this, this idea of universal solutions. And, you know, you're talking about the, the value of diversity and the need for diverse solutions in different parts of the world. And I think this is a little bit of a blanket statement, but the, the language of Silicon Valley has kind of seeped into a lot of the design world where everything is about scale, about reaching the most people, about kind of having these, these quote unquote, big impact. And what I'm hearing you say is almost the opposite, where it's, it's not necessarily about scale and, and, you know, hitting a billion people or whatever, but just, just like, who are the people around you? Like, what, it, what's, what's going on? What's the land here? And how can we kind of respond to that? How do this is a two-part question. I'm interested in how you think about that in your own work, but also when you're working with students. Um, are your students kind of, you know, uh, in that mindset of, oh, I want to kind of like do something big or, or you know, how do you kind of change that mindset to just let, let's look around right here? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about the mindset of Silicon Valley as opposed to um, these technologies, because there's one thing that we always talk about is that technology like Silicon Valley, it's born out of just such different and extreme circumstances, mm. like endless amounts of money, endless resources, like, you know, infinite um, potential for growth. When we kind of are questioning that anyway, right now, <laughs> right, um, right, in so right. many facets of our lives. Right. And then the technologies that I'm talking about are, you know, finite. Uh, limited resources built upon scarce conditions so they're very two different extremes and but I don't think that some of the terminology has to be mutually exclusive I think that mm. what we can understand is that you know when we're talking about design I think often we're talking about design for a particular um, socioeconomic level and a different place specific places in the world um, but if we're really going to talk about climate change and where it affects people first and where it affects people probably the most, um, and that's going to be in places that are like, you know, 90% of the world that designers are not specifically touching, but that's where a lot of these technologies are. And the potential mm. to have a scalar impact upon climate change, if those technologies in those locations with 90% of the world that have actually 
you know, designers aren't touching at this point in time, if those technologies, if the if our expertise were able to work with those communities, if there were scalable business solutions involved with those technologies, the potential to impact climate change, if you were to turn up the heat and expand and scale all those mm, technologies, right. that's going to have a much bigger impact than any technology that comes out of Silicon Valley. And right. any technology right. that we're thinking that will be universally born of, you know, the 10% of the world um, that can really afford to replicate really high-end technologies. So, you know, that, that kind of flips the concept on its yeah. head in a way. So it, it, it makes me sort of rethink some of those questions. That, yeah, that is actually really interesting. Um, how, like what's next for you and how, how does kind of this current moment that we're in um, change or, or, you know, kind of uh, excite the, the next things that you're working on or where you kind of see this work going? I mean, there's, you know, when COVID hit, I think a lot of designers were asked, how does this impact your practice? Um, apart from the obvious, um, you know, everyone being <laughs> separated and, and having yeah. to change their actual mode of practice. But, you know, I was looking at climate change and pandemic actually before COVID hit, because we were mm. working in Mozambique um, mm. um, and we were working in Vera and, and in that area of Uganda, there's been a lot of research that has already been connecting pandemic and climate change, because it's been realized that a lack of resilience in your environment will lead to um, outbreaks and will lead mm. to a lack of, you know, health and migration of communities before you get more occurrence of transmission encroachment upon nature reserves or, or the wilder landscapes. And then you get that xenotic transmission between different species. So building in resilience and ecological diversity as just a mandate for how, you know, how we're thinking about approaching pandemic, that completely made sense. So when, when the pandemic hit, I was like, yeah, of course, this is, Interesting. this is, this is knowledge that people, this is part of knowledge, especially in the public health field that people are already talking about, whether we're talking about it in the field of design yet, you know, we are now. And I think that trying to make the link between those two things to say like what we're experiencing now whether it's viral transmission or whether it's carbon emissions because we're all wearing masks because the air is filled with smoke from wildfires whether you're in the west coast or whether you're in australia these are all things about environmental resilience about the way we uh, live with our natural systems the way we develop our natural systems the way we expand the way we encroach and the way that we don't right so the flip side of that. And so all the, you know, the way that we have practiced and with climate change, all of those ways, it's always been progress, progress, because we haven't really had that indirect cycle back where through like our health or our food mm -hmm. or our water or our environment becomes really compromised. And now it's sort of like all these indirect impacts are becoming direct impacts. And right. so now we're realizing, okay, the shift has to happen. The good thing is I think that the shift is already happening. COVID has made global trade reduced and people are already starting to shift. There's this talk about globalization moving to this thing called 
globalization oh yeah where right. you know markets are changing like different type of markets respond differently um there's this idea of multipolarity which is really about regionalism and really investing in regionality and then that shifts towards this idea of hyperlocalism right and low tech is all about hyperlocalism and so being really responsive to your environmental needs at the local scale the district scale or the regional scale that's exactly ecological thinking and that's like ecological systems thinking so from multiple directions right. and multiple reasons it's interesting that we're already in so many facets whether it's economics governance trade um we're already moving in that direction and so that as designers we need to move in that direction as well yeah, I love that. I end every episode of the podcast, and I want to do that here also the same way. I'm just curious what you're reading right now. I'm reading um, Sand Talk by Tyson Nagapur. He is an Australian, he's an Australian Indigenous writer, um, and he's talking about what is, you know, how do you pass Indigenous knowledge? Like, what is the wisdom? What are the knowledge systems? what's appropriate way like exactly the fundamental critical questions that were like the foundation of the beginning of this conversation it's a great book oh great it brings this whole conversation full circle uh julia thanks so much for doing this this is this was so interesting i hope it was interesting for all of you i encourage you to look at the book get the book um you know, look at the case studies that are on, on Julia's website, because I think, um, as she said, there's just so much kind of knowledge here that that we can learn from. Uh, Julia, thanks again. Thanks for, for doing this. And um, thanks so much, Jared. this episode was recorded live for a Zoom audience on November 9th, 2020 at the AIGA Design Conference. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>